All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight, we're going to shake things up. We had an earthquake here this morning, and uh, in no room, no way related, we are changing from our planned Justice League to a different movie tonight. And uh, we'll be repeating bastards because we're going to have to mention this in the last Nards portion of the show as well. But this is going to be episode 137 of the show. You can find the show notes more at actualanarchy.com slash 137. We're doing Bad Times at the El Royale starring Jeff Lebowski. It's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Who? Jeff Lebowski. That's, that's who that's in that movie? The dude. The dude. The dude. He's not playing to the dude. He's, he's, oh, come on. He's always, he can do different things. He's always going to be the dude. No. Going into the dude of Reno Hall of Fame, dude. No, no, this guy, this guy, this character that he plays is a competent, kind of sneaky you know, ruthless kind of a dude. I don't think the dude, I don't think the dude could have pulled off what he pulls off in this movie. Well, we'll see. We will see. Anyhow, uh, if you like what we do here, hit us up at the old Patreon, get some pre-show and post-show content at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. And uh, I think we should just get into that last night's portion of the show. What do you say? Whatever you want to do, sir. All right, let's do that. everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters. And The Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Tonight, we're going to continue our series of over-promising and under-delivering, and we will underwhelm you by not doing Justice League this week. Instead, we're going to hit you with Bad Times at the El Royale, starring Jeff Lebowski and an ensemble cast. This movie is set in the late 1960s, where several strangers who are each walking contradictions meet by chance at Lake Tahoe's El Royale, a former hotspot hotel straddling the California-Nevada border, and morality becomes different depending on which side of the line you are on. And this will be episode 80 of the show, lastnighter.com slash 80. We will come back to you next week with Justice League and our friend Shaheen. He had a, uh, a commitment come up that he could not miss. So here we are doing this. My co-host is Robert Johnson. How you doing, Robert? Hey, buddy. I'm a little shaken, not stirred. We had a... Uh... The wee hours of the night had a little earthquakey hit us. It woke my ass up and had me running out half well. I had my stylish top on, but nothing else. If you can imagine that, if you want to imagine that, you probably don't want to imagine that. But don't blame you. The the sleeveless action. Yeah, but by the before I could get out of the house, it stopped. So either I'm too slow and I'm doomed to die in a earthquake collapsed house, or it was too mild and whatever. I survived. I'm still here. I'm happy. Well, I'm glad you're here to do this show with me. And uh, because we had this change up in our scheduling, we had considered another movie, uh, the new Predator movie. And um, you, Robert, you watched it and uh, you said it was terrible. So apparently you did have time to bleed. Uh, I wouldn't say I considered it, Bob. (laughs) I watched it. 
I tolerated it. There was no redeeming feature in that shit show. I didn't care about any of the characters. I wanted them all to die. The plot as it was, was laughable at best. And it was just uh, two hours of wasted time. So all right. that's our episode on uh, the new Predator movie. Yeah, I got bad reviews and I can see why. It was atrocious. It tried to be kind of funny, but it was not funny. Um, Shane Black, I mean, he's done some decent things in the past, but man, either he had too much free reign or he is just getting old and out of touch and whatever. But this thing was a mess from start to finish. I paid way too much attention to it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Well, we we have uh, the movie we're doing tonight, which actually did get really good reviews. However, it underperformed significantly at the box office, which uh, will be a part of our discussion, I'm sure. Um, but why don't we get in the Google description? Um, but actually, before that, if uh, you audience types like what we do here, you can definitely help us out by giving us subscribes on the old YouTubes and in the iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And probably the best thing you can do after that is give us a review in uh, in iTunes, and that helps raise our profile. And I actually think we got a review recently. Let me see if I can uh, pull this up real quick. Let's see. Bear with me. We did get another review. Yeah. And it says, oh, wait, nope. Well, dang it. I thought we did, and now I don't see it. Fantastic content. You can just edit this part out, probably. This well, is a little bit embarrassing for you. This, we will see. You know, I, I got an email about it. I wonder if, where the hell it could be. Anyway. Maybe they pulled it. Huh? Can you leave one and then delete it? Probably. Maybe they meant to leave it for a better podcast, and then they realized their mistake, and they're like, oh, no. <laughs> they're like, uh, no, no, we did not mean to leave you that review because we wanted to leave it on an actual good show. <laughs> All right. Well, disregard that. We'll, we'll just change guys here. Pretend that didn't happen. Anyway, uh, if you like what we do here, do subscribe on the old YouTube and iTunes and give us a review on there. It helps raise our profile. And, uh, I'll, I'll put a short link down there. Lastnighters.com slash Apple podcasts. And, uh, you can go directly to the review area. Do not pass go. Go directly to the review area and leave us a review. So here we go with the Google description for Bad Times at the El Royale for the 80th episode of The Last Nighters. Available at lastnighters.com slash 80. This came out on, uh, let's see here, October 12 of last year. The director is Drew Goddard, uh, but it might as well be Quentin Tarantino. Uh, it's called Bad Times at the El Royale. It's a drama thriller, two hours and 22 minutes, 7.1 on the IMDb, 75% Rotten Tomatoes, and 1.5 out of 4 from the old Roger Ebert site, but 88% of Google users like it. The El Royale is a rundown hotel that sits on the border between California and Nevada. It soon becomes a seedy battleground with seven strangers, a cleric, a soul singer, a traveling salesman, two sisters, the manager, and the mysterious Billy Lee converge on a fateful night for one last shot at redemption before everything goes wrong. The budget for this movie was $32 million, and the box office was $31.9 million. So they did not even recover their budget, and that doesn't include uh, any of the promotional stuff beyond that. So that is the, uh, the Google description. Your thoughts, Robert? Yeah, this movie, like you said, follows in the footsteps of Quentin Tarantino films. That's what immediately came to my mind when watching it because it's just these disparate, unique characters, and you they all have their own motivations, and you throw them in one location, and then you kind of just throw it in a blender and see how what happens, like let them play off each other and that sort of thing. A lot like The Hateful Eight or Four Rooms, just like have this normal location, have a bunch of wacky characters show up, 
all for their own reasons on the exact same time and then just see what happens. And uh, I think it's mostly successful. Um, I, I really liked the the acting. I like I like Jeff Bridges, Jeff Lebowski, as you call him. I always like him. He's he's just always strong. I don't know if he's he's the best um, old gangstery kind of a guy. I think he's a better priesty kind of a guy. But still, um, I didn't recognize a lot of the characters. I mean, obviously Liam. No, which which Hemsworth is it? Chris, Chris Hemsworth. Chris. Of course, I recognized him. I thought he was fairly charming in his um, really annoying role. Um, and I, I don't mean annoying as in I hated him when he was on screen. I just, it's like, if you were to really know somebody like that, I think he'd be insufferable. So I thought it was, yeah, yeah, really good. I mean, it's not your traditional story where you have like like a main protagonist and you follow their journey and you're kind of rooting for them the whole time. At the beginning of this movie, you don't even realize who the main character is. In fact, I would argue that I don't even know if there was a main character um, really only at the end when you're like, well, these are the only two people left alive. You're like, well, I guess this was their story, but honestly you could have gotten to the final act and had it been any one of their stories. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I thought it was uh, fun. And Oh, and my favorite thing about this movie, not to just spiel all out, but was that there's almost zero exposition. You do get flashbacks kind of explaining more who these people are. But there's never any kind of like dialogue where people are kind of explaining things so much. I mean, they're talking to each other a bit and like, who are you? What are you doing here? But for the most part, they're just kind of going about doing their thing. There's scenes where the audience doesn't know what the hell's going on. So there's an early scene where I think it's Jeff Bridges is walking into the the perv room where you can like spy on everybody. Or no, it wasn't Jeff Bridges. It was, the, it was another character. The John Hamm, Madman. That's who it was. Yeah, it's the, the FBI, the G-Man guy who was walking along and kind of watching these characters do their thing. And we're like, huh, Jeff Bridges is digging into his floor. That's kind of weird. We have no idea why he's doing it. It isn't explained at all. He kind of looks at it for a second and then moves along. There's all kinds of that stuff where, and, and another thing is that it's told, you know, it's not fully sequential, right? So a thing will happen and then we'll cut to another character five minutes earlier and then you get to see that same event from another person's perspective. Um, another reason why you think of Tarantino, I suppose. But um, that that is abandoned after, you know, like half the movie. But I, I thought it was effective. It was, it was a lot of fun. And that's not perfect, but a lot of fun. Yeah. And I'll, I'll agree with you for the most part. I think that that was interesting because not only did it show that people's different perspectives, but also highlighted what they didn't see. And therefore, they were left with an impression that it was actually something else because they weren't privy to all the new shit. Like that scene where Mad Men is down there and Jeff Bridges is digging and then he sees uh, the kidnapping or the apparent kidnapping. His perspective is, oh, this woman kidnapped some random person and I need to intervene and help. But we learn as an audience, well, that's actually her sister and she's trying to save her from this cult, this Manson-like cult. And it's only because Mad Men didn't, Mad Men didn't see that component of it he barges in and tries to play hero whereas i think right. he would have approached it a little bit differently had he known the new shit see now i'm doing my tarantinoism <laughs> but I, I i really thought that was rather deftly played um regarding jeff bridges character lebowski digging through the floorboards that plays back to the very open where the uh guy is burying something in the hotel room 10 years prior and so i thought that that was pretty obvious that that's what it was related to that 
this is the guy who either shot that character or this is one of his uh, accomplices who's trying to recover this money after 10 years. Yeah, I mean, if that's in case, if that was the case, I think the, that was played by what, John Offerman? Nick. Or Offerman? Nick Offerman, who's gunned down. And then that's all we get out of that scene. We don't find out more information really about who necessarily that was. We do get one scene where Lebowski is robbing an armored car. I and mean, they're all there are three guys wearing masks. Is one of those Offerman? Yes. Okay. And they're they're brothers. Okay. So this is why, yeah, it, it pays to pay attention a little bit closer than I was, probably. So excellent job, Daniel. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, hey, I'm I'm glad that we're here to critique a movie that one of us paid attention to. Uh, I paid attention to most of it. <laughs> but anyway, it it was um another thing that you know related to the detail was that Lebowski, he has um what they would have called senility, senility then senile, senile, senility, senility. Uh, and in the film, they actually call it dementia or Alzheimer's when the doctor explains it to him. But apparently back in 1969, those weren't actual terms being used until probably a decade or two later. But, uh, because he has this condition, he can't really recall which room he and his brother had decided that they were going to, um, bury the money into. And so he got the wrong room he dug through and he couldn't find the stuff. So then he knew that he had to go to the one next door, which was where the soul singer woman was staying. But we don't find that information out right away. What we get is a scene where the soul singer witnesses a murder or some kind of self-defense situation. She's not sure, but she sees someone get killed. And then she's goes and gets the ignition cables out of the guy's pocket, goes back, tries to start the car. And then in comes this guy who she had brained with a like a wine bottle because he was about to poison her or what she doesn't know, at least drug her. So I, I, that's the thing I like about this movie so much is that we don't know who the bad guy is. Like, we don't know the people's actual if they're actually telling the truth or not. When he jumps in the car with her, he's like, OK, yeah, you could shoot me in the head. And, you know, that's probably what I would do in your situation. We don't know if he's telling the truth about Anything he says, because he starts off being duplicitous and it turns out, yeah, he's been lying about being a pastor the whole time. And we're only eventually you know, convinced of the truth as like in the final act. But I think that's kind of cool because, you know, the G-man, we kind of find out that he's not a vacuum salesman almost right away when he like opens up this telephone and he's starting to place this bug and he's like, oh crap, there's already a bug in here. And then he tears apart the whole room and he's like, oh, there's all these bugs all over the place. What is going on here? And then he, you know, leads to him to the, uh, the spy room or whatever. But yeah, I, so that kind of leads the audience to think, well, is anybody who they really are? Is anybody who they really seem to be? And so that really leads to a sense of mystery in this film. And I really enjoyed it. All right. So I'm going to agree with you there as well, except maybe throw a little bit of uh, my having paid attention at you a little here. Uh, this is where Daniel like lectures at me to pay attention to movies. Ridiculous. I know. I know. It's, it's incredible. So the G-Man, John Hamm, Madman, he's in there. He's removing bugs. He's removing surveillance equipment from that room, the honeymoon suite, because J. Edgar Hoover has sent him there on that mission to recover all the surveillance stuff from that hotel. And so that's why he knows where all those things are. So when we're first watching the movie, we were like, what the hell's going on? Why is he finding like 20 different, you know, listening devices in the, in the hotel room, you know, in the lampshades and which is, and in the 
the phone and everything. Yeah, when he talks to J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover's like, get everything out of the room. Get all of the surveillance equipment out of there. No, he just wanted the 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 tape. He wanted the records of the stuff that was recorded. He would have wanted the tapes. He wouldn't have wanted like the little microphones. What does the microphones get him? He wanted everything out of there. Okay. Like evidence of the snooping? Yeah. That, 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 that snooping room is kind of evidence of snooping. The fact yeah. that those mirrors are two-way mirrors and the camera that's sitting there. So <laughs> not gonna get rid of the room. take that room out of there, John Hamm. I feel like you need to watch this again. Uh, so John Hamm is there as oh, an I do. agent on orders to remove surveillance equipment that the FBI has placed in that particular room. All the bugs and things, he's there to remove them. He's to, he's to recover those surveillance materials. And then he adds... Wait a minute. No, no, no. No. In this conversation, he says, by the way, Mr. Hoover, I discovered that there is another surveillance setup here that is not ours. There is an entire corridor with two-way mirrors and uh, a camera setup that is not the FBI's. And why a kidnapping in process that... Hoover tells him, do not interfere. He gives him the prime directive from the Federation. He says, do not interfere with that. You are not there. You have no duty to protect. There's one problem with your theory. There's one glaring problem with your theory is that when he first cracks open the phone, he has his own bug that he's going to put in it. And he is surprised to find another bug already in the phone. I Daniel. Well, he's removing all of the bugs. And he's laying them out on that coffee table. Yeah, after he finds the one in the in the phone. So maybe he finds one that is not theirs. Maybe that's what surprised him. I don't think he was putting any in. I think he was only there to remove his own. Well, then why did he have the one in his hand when he picked up the phone in the first place to put it in? Because he had the one that was a little square-shaped one and another one that was a little round-shaped, the one that he took out of, a, out of the phone. Oh, man, I'm going to have to watch that little portion again. Well, in the conversation with J. Edgar Hoover from the telephone booth, he says his mission is there to recover all surveillance materials, all of the bugs and everything, and to not interfere with the kidnapping, even though he's discovered this other surveillance that's been going on, which I want to uh, postulate on that a bit. And, and I think that this plays into the entire movie a little bit, like, and you alluded to this earlier, in that we're not given a bunch of exposition. In fact, we're given a lot of loose ends. We're given a lot of um, leeway with what happens outside of the story we're given to sort of speculate like well why why would this be that way what what could they be referring to you know back when this was a hot spot with the rat pack and sammy davis jr and frank sinatra and those guys and high-powered uh politically connected or politicians or hollywood people staying there and this surveillance being there to get dirt on them for blackmail purposes and then we've got miles who is the the last employee still there because now it's like almost a defunct hotel because they lost their uh, liquor license or the gambling license on the Nevada side. And so business dried up uh, since then. But prior to that, it was a, a real uh, hotspot place where a lot of high powered people were going. And I think that what they're alluding to is that it was used for political gamesmanship and blackmail. And that the one guy who was nice to Miles was probably like a Kennedy because they refer to him as, well, he was nice. So I didn't turn over this uh, surveillance tape over to my employer's management. Uh, but then they refer to him, oh, I know that guy, but he's dead. And the Billy Ray Cyrus guy, or Billy Lee, he's like, oh, uh, that, that could be a very useful uh, tape and very valuable because the memory of someone uh, could be changed very dramatically if from the results of, of what's on that tape. 
Right. So we're left to assume that it's probably either John or Bobby. Right. Yeah. Because the heyday for this place was like the mid 60s. And this is all set in 1969. So it's been kind of defunct for a while. I think um, Bobby died in what, 68? Uh, Yeah. And then JFK was 63. And I think that because they show Nixon fairly prominently in this in the newscasts and whatnot, or the, you know, what's on the TV, I think what they're saying is that Nixon is kind of related to it. And so perhaps the dirt was on Kennedy, but it didn't get revealed during that election cycle. And so Kennedy won that election. Mm. Now, what was the, there was also a a television broadcast that kept getting turned off by the singer lady that was of some murders that had happened. Yeah, in Malibu. Yeah. We're assuming that those are the Manson murders or is that an allusion to a character in the film? You think that is Boots under that sway. That's Boots, the, the girl, the young sister who was kidnapped by her older sister to be recovered from the cult. And Billy Lee is the cult leader. He's the Manson figure who had groomed her to commit that murder. And in the final scene, she she says he says, oh, I made her do terrible things. And she's like, oh, what terrible things? He goes, you know, the thing at the beach, right? That was bad, right? She goes, oh, that. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry for stabbing that couple and killing them. What's the television broadcast about a couple at a beach? Yeah, a couple living in Malibu who were uh, well-known philanthropists, well-connected to the community were murdered. Okay. And it, yeah. it was this cult that killed them. And Boots, the, the young sister, was the one who actually committed the stabbings. Okay, cool. Is this is this movie like make more sense a little bit now? Well, I don't think that that's necessarily super important, but it, it I mean, you're not going to put in something that for no reason, otherwise you're just wasting film. So yeah. Right. I mean, I think it's there to show you how fucked up she is, how, how drawn into the cult she is. She's been indoctrinated like, she watches her own sister die and doesn't give two shits about it. But when Billy Lee gets shot at the end, spoilers, of course, everyone, she's distraught and then uh, stabs the the Miles character who went into hero mode at the end there, saving everyone's life. He went into Rambo mode. Yeah, he was. Uh, I, I wrote Sniper Boy snipes the fuck out of the fuckers because that's what he does. Yeah, and he's like doing these like ninja moves, like he kicks up the rifle and. Just, you know, floats it up to his hand and it's like ping, 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 you know, just takes care, takes care of shit. And then he lets his guard down because this girl is uh, is so sad and distraught. And she's like, like, seems innocent and unassuming. Right. But he was there and saw her not give a shit about her sister getting murdered. He was a little bit preoccupied at the time with his own salvation. And she just copped to murdering the people in Malibu. So I don't know. I think that my guard would have been up a little bit. Well, little bit. he was a little bit preoccupied at the time and... Boots was behind him, as I recall. He was facing out towards the front door with the table in front of them and then Billy Lee talking to them while Boots was behind him, as I recall. So maybe he wasn't paying the most attention to this little psychopath girl. Yeah, and she she was she was the most disturbing character to me. And I want to say that the movie is trying to have these characters stand in for something. Like there was a reviewer on Amazon who said that he he likened it to reading Animal Farm and not realizing that it was about communism and then it dawning on him later, like when he had to do a book report on it and his teacher was like, you know, that's about communism, right? He's like, oh, oh, okay. He was saying that he thought that the the characters in this movie each represent something um, of a, uh, like an allegory type thing and, and that they're somewhat contradictory. Like each individual character has like two different sides to them that are somewhat contradictory. And I don't know if if I fully understand what he's talking about, but 
I saw the Billy Lee character being very charismatic, uh, but getting people to fight each other and be distracted while he picks their pocket, takes their stuff. He's, I think, on the surface, supposed to be a Manson-type character. But I think from my perspective, you know, the anarcho-capitalist perspective, I view him as like a politician, as a government. And Boots being his indoctrinated uh, populace, doing whatever he says and thinking that, that they're doing good. I really want that to be the director's intent. I don't think it is, but that would be fabulous if it was, because it's a perfect allegory. Yeah, and and I don't know what the other characters would would really stand in for, um, but they all they all pretty much do have fairly um, dark secrets that are separate from what they're portraying, except for I think the singer. I didn't quite understand what happened with her. Like she was a backup singer or a supporting singer or whatever, and then the guy, the the record producer guy, is like saying, hey, if you sleep with me, I can make you have a better career. And then apparently she turns him down. And that's like her, that's her dark secret, apparently. Yeah, I don't know if it's a dark secret. It kind of just shows her character that she's not willing to do that to further her career. I mean, the guy that was doing it was kind of slimy anyway. Yeah. And I think it's set in the movie to give us a reason why she can read right through the Hemsworth character. Because he's this charismatic blowhard with a bunch of platitudes trying to play people off each other. And she just looks right through him and says, you know, you're actually a weak and fragile man. Right. And I, I thought the exact same thing. I was like rooting for her from I was from her perspective the entire time, because every time he was the sick psychopath that wanted you to play his game, which is why I like the, the sister who's like, no, I'm not going to play your dumb game. You're going to kill me if you're going to kill me. You're just some sick psychopath. I'm not going to go along with, you know, making you happy. Why would I want to? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So I didn't, I didn't quite get the Billy Lee character. Honestly, I, I get it that he's supposed to be an allegory to either Manson. I like your allegory better than being a politician. But I still didn't understand his motivation. He just seemed to be some guy who showed up and all of a sudden he wants to kill everybody. Why? In fact, he goes up. As soon as he shows up, he ties up everybody. Like, secures the area. As if he's like, well, I guess like a government like SWAT raid police guy. And then he just starts killing people for no reason. Like, he has no motivation other than maybe killing the sister. But to kill everybody else, I mean, unless he's just some sick psycho that just wants to kill everybody and rob everybody, I guess he's a perfect politician, but it's still, you know, usually in a movie you have human motivations and people are humans, not, you know, psychopathic murderers. But, I mean, there are psychopathic murderers in movies, but I, I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, like, it wasn't you, clear why you know, what doing off on killing people. Yeah, I mean, um, well, I, I think that they, they try to liken him to, to a Manson character. And they, he does get off on violence and pulling strings and, and playing sort of God, you know, making these decisions, make, making people play his game, like right. to exercise Manson, the power. But Manson, he did that for sure. He was trying to, but he at least was like a cult leader in the sense that he had a message that resonated with the people that followed him. Yeah, it was a cult and he's like a cult figure, but he, I don't know, like, you know, like defend, defend Manson Charles now. Huh? Manson. I'm not defending Charles Manson. I mean, he drew that sweet swastika on his forehead. You know, he's got style sense, I guess. What am I saying? Anyway, um, he um, he saw, uh, you know, based on his perverted view of the world, he thought that he was doing good. He thought that killing these people would be a good thing for the world. And then so he had, you know, the people go out and kill those people. I never got that sense from the Billy Lee character that he was like killing the evil people that he perceived as evil. Or anything like that. I don't know. Yeah, I would agree with you on that as well. I think that 
his his psychopathy is is mostly just to exact violence on people and to get people to follow him to like feed yeah, his he's more like the Joker. He's more like just some psychopathic mass murderer type guy and less about a cult leader type person. Because at least, like I said, with a cult leader, you usually have young, impressionable people that are looking for answers. And a cult leader person comes along and provides those answers as twisted as they may be. They have something to say that resonates with those people. That kind of reassures them. Yeah, this is the way that how the world works. These are the evil people. We're the good people. We're going to you know, show you how to do do a better way of life and you need to kill those people so that you know we make the world a better place and i didn't get that sense from the billy character that's all i'm saying yeah i, I think i think he had the first part you know when he was doing this little speech and spiel about um how society is like trying to get you to fit into these little boxes but really you don't have to you don't have to follow along with that and it's just to get you to fight each other so that they can get away with things right i think he had that fight part of the message while we're robbing you right yeah so that's sort of like you know how Bernie and, and AOC will sometimes like diagnose, yeah, this situation is messed up, but their prescription is more of what made it that way. <laughs> yes, for sure. So yeah, you know, occasionally they're they're right about like, yeah, something's wrong with this particular thing. Uh and and I feel like Billy Lee was sort of able to identify, yeah, something's not quite right. But yeah, his solution wasn't a good one and it definitely didn't make a whole lot of sense, uh, what his motivations were. Now I want to shift topics to a bit of um the hotel itself. Yes, please. In- in the vein of The Shining, it's oh. almost almost a bit of a character in the movie. And it's it's a unique situation because it's half the hotels in one state and the other half's in the other. And they play it up, um, you know, that this side, well, you, you can you could have gambled on this side, but not this other side. And if you have anything to drink, it has to be on this side and not the other side. And if you want to stay on the California side, it's a dollar more for the rooms than on the Nevada side. And they question that like well is it really worth a dollar more and his response was well some people seem to think so which was a great example of you know marginal utility scales like people have preferences and they're willing to pay a little bit more for something that's going to satisfy them more than something else yeah and i liked how also it the 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 location of the hotel kind of illustrated the silliness of these 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 imaginary borders like you're on this side of the line and so things are just totally different for some dumb reason and then you're on the other side and then you can do this thing because reasons, because politicians have written down little scribbles and now we have to live this way. Yeah, because morality is different if you're on this side right. than on that side. Like gambling's okay over here, but not over here. Drinking's okay over there, but not over here. Prostitution's okay over here, but not over there. Uh, and it's just like the line that's, you know, divide. it's a, a literal line, a red line right between the, the uh, middle of the hotel. Right. Now, if these were private property borders, I would be totally fine with all that stuff. If it was somebody owned that area and was like, I don't allow X, Y, and Z on this part of the land, fine. But it isn't. These are arbitrary lines, you know, developed by politicians. So, yeah. Now, hotel owner saying, yeah, these rooms over here are a dollar more just because I want them to be. Or they're a little bit nicer or whatever. Then, yeah, sure. I don't care. Yeah. And it's a bit of a, of a novelty thing, too. And I guess this was actually based, at least the concept, uh, was based on a hotel that I think Sinatra actually owned called the Cal Nevada or something like that. It's it's no longer in existence, but it was on the border just like this, where part of the hotel was in one state and part of it was in another. So I'll try to find some information on that and put it on the show notes page, lastnarrows.com slash 80. Um, but like we talked about earlier, this was a hotspot for a Rat Pack type for a while. And then I want to say that they probably lost their gambling license for a reason. Like maybe it, it had served its 
useful life. And so they were no longer needing to blackmail people. And so this place like basically dried up because reasons, because they no longer could uh, have a gambling establishment here. And I guess people would now have to go into Reno to be able to gamble. And uh, there was a, a an accident recently in Hawaii, a skydiving accident, and some people died as a result of it. And I just saw a news story this morning that said, oh, apparently the skydiving uh, company didn't have the proper permits to be able to do skydiving. As would have if, saved those people's lives. Yeah, as if having this magical piece of paper would have saved their lives. And uh, that reminded me of, uh, you know, the, the line in the Cable Guy, Jim Carrey movie. It's like, don't ever go bungee jumping in, Me- in Mexico. They just don't have the regulations. Yeah, because they don't have an incentive to keep their customers alive like they do here for some reason. <laughs> okay. So obviously, I mean, I'm going to, this is a voluntary relationship checking into this hotel. You want to stay there and whatever. But I think that there's some kind of implicit contract, right? That you're not necessarily going to have your sexual activities recorded and spied upon by staff. What do you, what do you think is, is this, is this an, an act of aggression? Is this a fraud? What, what do you think is going on here that's, that would be immoral on the part of the uh, hotel owners? Do you think they have a duty to disclose the nature of the thing? Uh, yeah, I think that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy when you're staying in a, well, pretty much anywhere. I mean, of course, the government violates this all the time. Uh, and if a private actor were to do it, of course, we would see it as a problem. But for some reason, people seem to give uh, uh, other people a free pass just because it's for terrorism or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that that this would be a violation. Now, perhaps uh, you could have a place like this and make it known that's what it is and people might get off on it. I mean, they said one of the guys uh, who stayed in this place laid with a wolf. It wasn't sexual, but it wasn't not sexual. You know, like people do weird things. People are into weird stuff. So maybe that would be like a niche, uh, you know, this voyeuristic hotel, like you might be being watched, but maybe not. You know, it's like a Benthamite uh, panopticon, the two-way mirror. Oh, it would be packed full of exhibitionists that would love the idea of them secretly being watched i think that's a that's a thing a lot of people enjoy yeah wasn't there a thing a couple of years ago called um chat roulette where you would just be like mystery paired up with somebody and you'd always like i, I never did it myself but i heard that people would just get the weirdest shit happening oh yeah because so people the, the, an episode on this where he said yeah it's like 90 percent guys just jerking off <laughs> <laughs> but yeah people just like get off on the the idea of I might be watched by someone who I don't know who it is, you know? So yeah, I think you're right. I mean, maybe this would have been a pretty popular uh, attraction. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised it's not more of a thing. I mean, I'm sure that there are those sorts of things in like sex clubs, um, but yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe that's where all the uh, the demand for that sort of thing goes. It's just to uh, sex clubs in cities. Yeah, now I'm going to take us a little bit sideways here and because this is in the news lately and it's the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. Are you familiar with this? I've heard of it. I know what's going on. The Lolita Express. I don't know a whole lot about it. Orgy Island. Yeah, the Orgy Island with the underage kids and whatnot. Um, Apparently, there's a theory out there that, you know, all these high-powered Hollywood types were going there and and politician types. And just like in this movie, there may have been recordings of these illegal and immoral actions being taken by these people at this place to be used as leverage against them politically and for blackmail purposes. Well, there is a theory that I somewhat subscribe to, almost certainly subscribe to, that you don't get to those levels of power without people having dirt on you. I mean, I know that's probably, it's something that Alex Jones talks about, so maybe it's been discredited because he talks about it. I don't know. But it sure seems, I mean, if you really look into the lives of these people, 
people. Uh, you know, like Hillary Clinton hangs out and is married to a pedophile. Her one of her best friends is like another pedophile, and they go to these pedophile parties. And then there's the whole Pizzagate thing. Uh, it seems to be. And then then there's the whole um, what's his name, Charlie? Uh, who's the um, who's the kid in Hollywood that said like Hollywood's full of pedophiles? Oh, uh, Corey Corey uh, Feldman. Corey Feldman or Corey Ham, one of those two. Yeah. So there there seems to be that sex with kids is just a thing that either they they all do or they try to get you with or get dirt on you about. I don't know. But I can't say in, for sure, but you you hear enough rumors and you go, whether there's smoke, there's fire. Well, and and in this movie, Boots, I I would venture to say that she's potentially underage, right? And the Billy Lee character is obviously a grown adult man. Right. And we get information about her that she was molested and abused as a small child. Right. And her sister, I guess, either killed their father or fought him, injured him in such a way. And then they, they got away from him. I mean, there were those little like flashbacks to those prior events. And it was really hard to tell what was really going on, I think. But yeah. she had gotten in the, the older sister had gotten in a fight with the dad. And then she hid uh, her younger sister under the bed and said, don't come out whatever you hear. And then we're sort of given this um, scene of maybe she had done something to kill the dad. Right. Right. But it's all from the little kid's perspective. And we just we're not sure. Right. Yeah. So it's it's kind of hard to tell. And I think that goes back to the open ended nature of the story here where you can sort of like veer in and out of it a little bit and fill it in with your own imagination, I want to say. And in a way, I think that that makes it, uh, I don't know, kind of unique to the, each individual. It's, it's a bit subjective, right? You kind of bring your own history and your own ideas to what you're seeing and you try to, to connect the dots a little bit. Sure. Um, that, that makes me think of the, uh, the G man breaking in the hotel room to try and rescue the girl, but then the, the lady shooting him with a shotgun. I mean, that, that seems to be some sort of like series of unfortunate events because he's trying with the best of his knowledge to rescue somebody who's being aggressed against. And then he ends up getting shot himself when he's seen as an aggressor, I suppose. Or is she is the sister committing an immoral act there? What do you think? Well, I think that that could have been handled a little bit differently with with the conversation. Uh, he doesn't even mention that he's a FBI agent to her. He just barges in there and appears to be the aggressor. Well, yeah, yeah. but you can't really reveal that he's a G man, right? He's got he's on like an, a top secret mission to like clear out all the listening bugs and stuff. You can't like announce to people that oh yeah, by the way, the FBI is here, or can he? Well, yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of tough. I mean, it was. Say something or, or get cut in half with a shotgun, which I mean, I probably would have said something at that point. I don't know. But do you think he handled things poorly? I mean, not necessarily poorly, but did you do you think he aggressed against it? No, I think that he was coming to the defense of another. And I think that he let his guard down. Like all he did was knock her down, knock down the older sister. Right. And, and totally stopped paying attention to her. Right. Yeah, that's I think that's not following protocol there. Right. You know, it was similar to at the end when Miles wasn't uh, paying attention to the sister as well, you know, and, and her being a threat to him and he ends up paying the price for that. But I want to talk a little bit about like some inconsistencies I saw in the movie or just some like this doesn't make any sense. Okay. So when the Jeff Bridges Lebowski character gets back in the car with the soul singer and basically lays out to her like, hey, the reason I'm here is to try to recover this money. And if you help me recover the money, I'll split it with you. Splitsy, splitsies. Mm -hmm. So they go back into the hotel room, her room, and they put on this ruse of her singing to cover up the fact that they might be being surveilled at that time, but they don't know if they're being surveilled. Right. 
they don't just put a sheet over the mirror like any normal person would do. Right. Yeah. It didn't make sense to me because who are they going to think is going to be watching them? And wouldn't they have potentially seen him enter the room or them exit the room? You know what I mean? Like, it didn't make sense to me why she would sing and then clap with the thing so he could pry up the floorboards. I mean, I get why they have it in the movie. It's to, like, raise some tension and, and whatever. But it's not like they had any reason to think that they had to do that. Right. They would. They had to re- believe that they were. they had the chance of being surveilled the entire time. So they concoct this elaborate ruse the, so for the entire time. But then, of course, they only show it, them doing it, for as long as the person is watching for some reason. So you imagine that they're just doing it the entire time that he's digging. I don't know. It, it, it seemed like it was contrived scene just for the audience's sake and less for what they really would have been doing. Whatever. Right. And and that was going back to the whole reason why he was trying to roofie the, the soul singer was because he had looked in his room and then he determined that, well, it actually must be the next room over, which happens to be where she's at. So that's why he tried to get her to join him for dinner so that he could drug her and then be able to dig up in the floorboards under her room. But I don't understand why he couldn't have just waited a day. Like she's going to be out of there. Just stay in one more day, get the thing, you know, change rooms, change guys, whatever. Right. But again, you know, it doesn't fit the story. You gotta, you gotta set up these contrivances in order to tell a story. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah, he's gotta, got nothing but time. He didn't have to, like you said, he didn't have to get out of there the next day. She did. The contrivance was that she had to go because she had a job the next day, but he didn't. Right. Now, he did have limited uh, time in his life left. Like the doctor had told him that while he was still in prison, and by the way, he they, they allude to something that happens later because he had been fighting in prison. So he's in the hospital at the prison from a fight and they're like oh you know you have this condition and you're you've probably got about six months left which is about when you're due for parole so you might make it till then right so the story's happening after he's gotten out on parole and so he only has a very short period of time maybe a few months left of in, in his life but somehow he's also like a really good brawler and fighter and he can take down fucking thor yeah he took on chris hemsworth and another guy like pretty well for this old crusty dude but I mean, they set that up with him saying that he was fighting the Mexicans and or the Irish or whoever he was supposedly fighting. Yeah, and he's like a badass brawler like Vince Vaughn in Cell Block ninety nine or something. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. You know, they gave him the the mental you know thing. But I mean, maybe they're at a time when dementia isn't really as quite understood or Alzheimer's. But yeah, you do eventually die, I suppose, from dementia or Alzheimer's. But it you kind of waste away for quite a while. You, you, if, if by the time you're dying, you've been in a bed for just like months, just kind of like not knowing who you are, or who anybody else is. And so not brawling with Thor? In a- not so much brawling with Thor. I, I don't think you'd be doing a whole lot of that while you're <laughs> while you're almost dead from Alzheimer's. But, you know, contrivances for the movie's sake, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I did a little bit of reading on this, and this was like a late season replacement for us. I mean, we just decided yesterday that we were going to, watch this one and do this but i did read a little bit about it after watching the movie last night and apparently hemsworth he looked pretty ripped and cut in this movie to me but he shot this after i think um infinity war whatever that avengers movie was before endgame they well they shot in endgame and infinity war at the same time okay well for shooting this movie apparently he had to drop 20 to 30 pounds of muscle oh to play this role he was too buff for this role yeah, he was the director was like, no, dude, you're too shredded. You got to 
you got to trim down a little bit. Right, but he looks fucking buff and shredded in this one to me, I think. But I haven't seen Endgame or Infinity War, so maybe he's like even more ripped. Well, spoiler alert for Endgame. Should I tell you? I don't know. Eh, spoilers all the time. That's what we always okay, say. Okay, spoiler alert for Endgame. He's a he's big fat guy in Endgame. He's fat Thor. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, he's he's four. Well, how how does it uh <laughs> if they shot him back to back like that, then how did that happen? It's a fat suit. I mean, he's probably still shredded underneath. Oh, okay. All right. So it's it's CGI and makeup and whatnot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. They probably added a little CGI, but it's probably mostly a suit. Okay. Oh, I'm gonna throw this tidbit out there, a little teaser for next week when we actually do Justice League. Uh apparently Henry Cavill was shooting another film at the same time as Justice League, and he was going back and forth between sets, and he had to have a mustache in one of the movies. And so they wouldn't let him shave it to do Justice League. So all the scenes you see Superman in Justice League. They CGI remove his mustache. Well, there's actually a little bit more to that story. So it was the uh, the man from Uncle was the movie he was shooting at the time. And there was a spat between the two movie studios. And one of them was like, well, why don't you just shave this mustache? And then we'll, you know, we'll pay to have a CGI mustache put on in your movie in the man from Uncle. And they were like, no, we've had this guy under contract and we're not breaking it. Tough titties. So Warner Brothers was basically like, out of options because they did a whole bunch of reshoots with Joss Whedon coming back in and all that crap. And uh, yeah, so they ended up CGIing his mustache. And so it's not every scene, but it is a lot of scenes. And especially it's really noticeable, unfortunately. Right in the very, very beginning of the movie, there's like a shot where a a fan is holding up a cell phone and it's shot in, you know, portrait um, format. And he's got this big old weird funky lip. And I don't know, have you seen it yet, Daniel? No, not yet, because we we had the switcheroo. I watched this instead. Okay, so once you see it, you cannot unsee it. It is it is it's uncanny valley situation. It's really uncomfortable to watch, and you'll notice it. Yeah, throughout the film, it's not every scene, but it is unfortunately a lot of close up scenes, and it's bad. It's it's really bad. Wow. All right. Well, I, I will be watching that for our next episode, which uh, we're going to need to start winding down this one before too long here. But I did want to bring up uh, another thing that I just saw in general, and that was when Lebowski and the singer do go get food. There's this like self-serve automat style of getting these sandwiches and pieces of pie. And they're like, I don't know if I'm healthy enough to eat that sandwich or or I don't know if I'm lucky enough or whatever it was. (laughs) Because who knows how long that's been there, right? I mean, this place has been like run down. Where Where are these sandwiches coming from? How long have they been there? Uh, you're basically taking your own life into your own hands yeah it, it'd be like eating 7-eleven sandwiches but worse i think 7-eleven sandwiches get get replaced way more frequently right or at least like have a date on them or something um yeah but you know this was obviously like a cost savings measure right and i mean it must have been there when it was in its heyday i would have thought i mean it's not like you're gonna throw a bunch of money to automate build or, yeah yeah but i mean you see these uh these screens going in at mcdonald's now like at the airport in Seattle now, it's like, that's how you order. Um, and that's because SeaTac is the city that first implemented the $15 minimum wage. And so sure. of course, it incentivizes the company to be like, well, now it's worthwhile to invest all of this money in, in equipment because we're going to save money versus, you know, the labor that we would have had to spend on this time horizon. Whereas before, you know, it wouldn't have made sense. They would have continued to hire workers, just not at that rate. And so it, it distorts the uh, the allocation of, you know, capital resources and it puts people out of work as a result. So, you know, this benevolent, like, oh, we're going to help lift the wages of everyone. Well, actually you're not, you're going to make them unemployed, which 
you know, yeah. And, and, and that. you know, I used to listen to the Bill Burr podcast, the Monday morning podcast and the Thursday afternoon podcast, Thursday afternoon, just before Friday. Is that what he called it? I forget. But that was one of the things that he would always rail about. Probably still does to this day. He rails about the self-checkout machines and any kind of automation. And he's just like, don't use them. Don't use them. They're just taking away your jobs. Just taking away jobs. And he never attributes the the fault where the fault lies with it. And it's really annoying that he's just like these evil, greedy bastards are putting these machines in because they're just evil, greedy bastards. And yeah, it's never due to like what you just said, minimum wage laws, getting in there and messing up the system. Now, eventually, maybe people would prefer to deal with a machine as opposed to a person. But that sort of thing is accelerated by these minimum wage laws, where people are all of a sudden finding that they are not providing enough value to offset the the cost of these new machines. Right. Yeah. Those regulations and, and minimum wages and other things, they distort the calculus, right? So in a fully free market, it might have made sense, you know, like 10 years from now to automate or whatever, um, but not so early. But now because the the rates are so much higher, now it makes sense to go ahead and implement it now. I've also seen news stories around about how those touchscreens are like apparently covered in poop. They don't get cleaned very enough. And then clean off enough. And oh, I don't know if this is just a way to everybody's getting pink eye. (laughs) Everybody's getting pink eye. Right. Or or if it's just like hit piece type uh, journalism, you know, like oh well, we don't like these machines, so let's say that there's poop on them, and maybe there's you know a microscopic amount, just like there would be on you know pretty much anything, right? There's like five percent or less rat feces in all food, right? Isn't that something like that? Yeah, yeah, like whatever the (laughs) FDA allowances are. But I mean, you get what I'm saying, like, like, because journalists tend to be left leaning and have an agenda and probably don't like these machines, like Bill Burr says, don't use them, don't use them. So then you, you know, use them. So activist uh, uh, journalism, perhaps, I mean, speculating, more speculation. That's all I've been doing. Uh, speculation. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's probably a lot of that because what gets reported on is all done through filtered through the lens of their own politics or their own at least idea of what's important right right and and you know, they'd probably argue that well i'm objective and all that stuff but you can't you can't divorce yourself from yourself no if, unless unless the news agencies are going to be replaced by robots and even then you'd worry and wonder about their programming but if it was just some list if, if if the news of the future is just some list of every single observable event that occurred in a day on earth and then you just apply whatever your search or filter parameters to it to find out what you are interested in. There's always going to be subjectivity in reporting. That's right. That's right. All right. Um, what else do you got on your notes? Any Anything additional before we get into the final summary and review action? No, I thought, you know, all my interesting things were, you know, talking about the hotel and then a few complaints like we talked about. Everything else after that is just a list of what happened because... Uh, you know, I was trying to analyze it from a, you know, who's aggressing against who and what situation, but it never really got too complicated. I mean, there was never really a, um, what's that movie that we talked about a lot? The Western Deadwood? No. Tombstone. There wasn't a tombstone situation where it was really controversial. Like who's at fault here? Who's aggressed against who? It was pretty cut and dry. I thought for the most part. So, I mean, I know, I know the little kid was really worried about killing people. He was really upset. He didn't, he didn't really differentiate from the murder that he did in war to defending people. I mean, he was clearly in Vietnam in somebody else's country 
killing the defenders of the people or whatever, you know, you can get into the arguments about whether the Viet Cong were defending the South and it was theirs or not or whatever. But I, I know, and he was, that was weighing on his conscience. And he's like, well, I just can't kill any more people. He didn't differentiate between, you know, aggression and defense, which, you know, I didn't expect him to be a philosopher. So that's, you know, it's fairly realistic, but I, that's what I would have said. I would have been like, yo, kid, you're trying to protect these good people's lives from these bad people. Go ahead and shoot them in the head. So you're talking about Miles, the the hotel guy? Yeah, the poor little hotel guy with the shot face. The shot face and the heroin addiction? Yeah, who did a lot of bad stuff in his life, killed so many people. Yeah, now, while watching the movie, it's not yet known what the bad stuff is that he's done that he's trying to seek redemption from. So as as it's unfolding, and we're learning more and more about the hotel and like the seedy activity that goes on there and sort of the weirdness that goes on there, I was thinking that he was like some kind of a serial killer, especially when he says he killed 123 people. That's the beauty of this movie is that you're left to wonder what the hell is this kid talking about? What is it that he did? Did he get high and strangle a bunch of people? So like you said, go ahead. Right. right. Does he have like some weird, like, you know, serial, serial, serial killer thing going on or, or what? And it's not until that very end when we discover that, no, he is trying to get repentance for the, the criminal activity he did in war, the murdering he did for, for the behest of politicians, you know, and he's actually, recognizing it as an evil deed and as murder and he's not differentiating uh from self-defense until the very final moment when the soul singer's like you can do this you can do it and then he says no and she's like okay she she like finds her peace and is like she's willing to just die at that point i guess but that's yeah, i think i think so full, full on rambo mode yeah. and kicks some ass uh which i thought was like really i don't know it was like an uplifting moment it's like yeah you know he's he's in there kicking ass doing the self-defense thing He's overcoming his um, PTSD, you know, action, you know, from from being in war. Right. And he's using those skills that he acquired, the very specific set of skills to hunt right. them down. Right. Uh, taken, taken style, Liam Neeson style. I'm, I'm matching up like six movies here. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, that's what we do here. But um, but yeah, then he lets his guard down and ends up getting. He, yeah, he, he feels that he had killed all the bad guys and then he was done. And then he wasn't. He was going to go and console this lady that was super upset about him killing about this guy he just killed i would be a little bit wary of that situation like i just killed this lady's friend or lover or whatever and she's probably not gonna be too happy with me at this moment so right. i don't know if i'd go and uh, be mr consoling guy but and about the other cult members and again you know she was more upset about the cult people dying than her own sister yeah that was some messed up shit right there i was like what she just he shoots her sister and she doesn't even bat an eyelash. I was like, that is messed up. This is clearly damaged goods lady. Yeah. Super. I think we could have gone pretty, pretty in a different direction on this episode and talked about cults and stuff. Um, so maybe we'll have to do another movie and then we can harken back to this a little bit, but what do well, we, did you, I mean, when, when he was playing the game, like when he was, had everybody tied up, Billy Lee had everybody tied up. I absolutely wanted to be the guy that was telling this guy, you know, fuck you, Billy. Fuck you, I'm not playing your dumb game. You're a piece of shit. You're going to kill me if you're going to kill me. But, you know, why are you even doing this? You're just some psychopath, piece of crap. I, I wanted him to die. I thought the movie was written well enough that he was a fantastic villain, even if I didn't understand his motivations. And I think he would have been better if I he had had some motivations, some human motivations to go along with his psychopathy. But as it was, I still thought he was compelling enough to root for the 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 heroes to when when they start to kill him to be like yeah kill those motherfuckers because they're pieces of trash they're just gonna go around aggressing against people and they 
you know, those are the kind of people in society that we could do without, honestly. <laughs> now that we're advocating for... I'm not advocating for any kind of final solution about them. I'm not saying that. But, you know, there's justice. That was justice taking place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that was them defending themselves and, yeah, achieving a level of justice uh, that was, I think, totally within the scope of uh, being a righteous thing, you know, being a moral thing to do. That's right. All right. Well, let's get into that final summary and review, Robert. Why don't you lead us off? Sure. So Bad Times at the El Royale took me a little bit by surprise. I didn't know what to expect. I saw the trailer before I watched the movie. And it's basically just looked kind of like a Tarantino style crime drama thing. And it turned out to be exactly that. But it was, I don't know if I want to say unique enough. I mean, it wears its inspirations on its sleeve. But it was unique enough in that it, you know, the, the setting, the, the time of it, the integration with the the different kind of archetypes and the characters in the kind of real world um, was definitely unique enough and fun and intriguing enough. I mean, you got you got a G man who's talking to Hoover. You got you got uh, the, the 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 Manson cult figure guy and the, the the girls that are you know escaping him. But she seems like she's a bad person at the beginning, and you know people aren't who they think they seem to be, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. I think we uh, covered the 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 the, the not so perfect parts well enough, and it's not a perfect movie. I'm not giving this movie a perfect score, but it was a perfectly good popcorn flick. That I don't know if it's quite up to the level of like a Tarantino film. I don't know. I think that maybe the Tarantino film would have been had a little bit better dialogue, maybe a little bit more pronounced characters. Like I think he he wouldn't have let the Billy Lee character have almost no motivation. Um, but. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, this is a strong film. I'm going to give it a um, an eight, a solid eight. I recommend it. It was way better. I mean, I did just watch it right after watching The Predator, which is like a maybe a two, maybe like a 1.5, just to stay away from that steaming pile. But by comparison, this is like a masterpiece. But it's it's really not quite a masterpiece. It's, it's just a really strong flick that I, I recommend and enjoy. All right, very good, sir. I, I hearken to... Uh agree with most of what you've said there. I think that uh, another thing that makes it rather Tarantino-esque is the the music. You know, he's very much one to put in popular movies from the period or or a period and and sort of tie together his movies with that. And so they, so they sort of do this in this movie as well with like the doo-wop and the deep purple. And uh, I guess they had a score written specifically for this that kind of has that same vibe to it. And so the music is actually sort of like another character in this movie in a way. But yeah, it does feel like a poor man's uh, Tarantino. And I think that it it does a good job of like keeping you guessing and, and having that different perspectives and different components of the story being revealed to you at different times. And so you can see uh, an event from one angle and then until you see more than it like changes the story for you a little bit. It does make it a little bit complicated, but it also kept me kind of on my on my edge of my seat like oh what's happening I'm, I'm a little bit confused here what's going on you know and and like uh when miles was kind of this creepy pedo type dude or um you know peeper type dude drug addict and then he cops to murdering 123 people you're like whoa what the hell you know like what what kind of like sadistic stuff is he into um but then you know then by the end you sort of get it all revealed now there are some contrivances that put it together just to make it all happen and converge all at the same time same night uh, and all of that. But I, I'm going to give those a, a little bit of a pass. I, I do think you're right that Tarantino would have made the Billy Lee character a bit more uh, have a reason for what he's doing um, and make him more, 
I don't know. I, I think he would be even like more scary if if you knew the reason, right? Or or even if you didn't know what it was, but you knew there was something driving him that they just sort of teased. So then you're left to like imagine what it might be. But here we're not really given anything. Right. So, I don't mean to interrupt you, but to to offer a, a for for instance, you know, Marvel villains are traditionally terrible. They're just like, well, what's his motivation? Well, he's evil. That you could say that about a lot of Marvel villains. But then when Thanos came around. And he actually had a philosophy. It was terrible, Malthusian, you know, we're going to run out of resources thing. But at least he had an idea and a reason for his, you know, psychopathy. Like, I, I have this horrible thing I need to do that I believe to be true. And this is how I'm going to save the universe by killing half of its people. That's obviously horrific and evil. But at least you understand his motivation. We're here. It's just like, well, what's, what's, what's Billy Lee's motivation? Oh, he's evil. So, uh, sorry. You go ahead, sir. I just want to point that. All right, yeah, I think that was a good aside, and and I do appreciate that. Yeah, and that and that is what's lacking here. We don't see like why he's doing this, and there's not even like a tease as to why he's doing this. Uh, maybe he's just an egomaniac, or maybe you know the soul singer calls him out, and you know he really is just this fragile person who's like overcompensating, sort of like I don't know, like a short man syndrome or whatever, where like they'll drive a big truck, a Napoleon complex, right? Even though he's like super ripped and buff in this movie, <laughs> so it's it's whatever. Um, but, you know, the other side of this is uh, I do like that the story does leave it a little bit open ended in how it's weaved or woven together to where you can sort of like fill in the outsides of it by yourself. Like we're told, oh, yeah, management wants me to record people in compromising positions, but they don't tell me why. They just have me mail it to some P.O. box. We have no idea who management is. Apparently, it's not the FBI. So it's some other secret entity probably connected to government or something like that but um we're not told what that is you know the the movie's over now and we don't know so i i do like that kind of thing where you can sort of bring a bit more to to the story that's that's there and it'll kind of make it unique choose your own adventure for every individual who watches it so i think that makes this potentially a rewatch um because I, I i'm pretty sure that you can probably find new elements in the story that were missed before i mean some of the things you were saying, Robert, it made me think you missed a fair amount. But um, I might even watch this again because I might have missed something. I, I do act actually want to see, like, is he putting bugs in or is he removing them? I think he's just there removing them. And maybe he found the ones that the hotel had put in there themselves. And he thought, okay, this is weird. But anyway, we're doing uh, the reviews now. Um, I like your score. I think uh, 80.0 for episode 80 of The Last Nighters. Yeah, I know, right? Talk about contrivances. That's what I'm doing. So uh, that's that's our episode 80 of The Last Nighters. Both of us give it an eight for... For the record, I did not know that. I didn't do that. Mine was an, a, a legitimate organic eight based on the movie film that we watched and my feelings about it. Daniel's was a contrivance score. There you go. Yes, thank you very much. So let's contrive our way into what's going to be the next episode. And you guessed it. We've already told you it's going to be Justice League. And we're going to do the wrap up on Batman v Superman because we didn't give our final summary and review or scores on that one. And I actually have some more notes from that uh, from that movie that I wanted to like bring up and talk about. So hopefully we can cram that all into maybe a super expando episode next week with Shaheen when he comes back uh, from down under. So I think that's going to be about all the time we have for tonight. This one actually went a little bit long. I'm a bit surprised. So thank you guys for sticking around with us this long. If you like what we do here. Check us out at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. Give us some reviews on the old iTunes and or Apple podcasts at lastnighters.com slash podcasts. 
And you can also check this out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. We'll be back next week with Justice League. And I'll say good night from last night. All right, we'll continue the transmission a little bit longer on the Actual Anarchy podcast. Robert, you seem to think that the Jeff Lebowski, Jeff Bridges character was a bit of a hero type in this and that you kind of liked him. However, comma, generally speaking, you tend to not like characters who do bad things in the movies. And he's robbed an armored car and done time. And, you know, he's he's what are you supposed to think about this guy? Why? why yeah, do you he's favorable he's he's a piece of shit for the most part. But he has his own sort of moral code. Like, you're not sure if he's completely full of shit and he's actually just going to start choking her when he gets in that car or whatever. You know, he's going to find his, uh, his opportune moment and then he's going to kill her. And you're right. He did. He, he robbed an armored car. He did time. He's, he's at the end of his life and he's still going to drug a lady and get into her room. He's not. A, he's not a, but, but when he's up against Billy Lee... Pretty much anybody looks good, I suppose. But so then he looks a little bit okay, like an okay human being. Like he 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 recognizes Billy Lee for what he is, much like the the singer lady did too. Ale- what was her name? I forget. Anyway, she was she she knew men like him, and she was bored of him. And I think that was for a guy that thrives and thirsts on attention and having like his influence over people. That's like cancer to him that's like what he cannot handle are you kidding me there's there's somebody who who is bored of me and won't play my game and won't listen to me that's got to be the the worst nightmare for a guy like that yeah you know that stood out to me as well i I thought that she had a good comeback against him because he did have that craving and then she didn't satisfy it but she still gave in and sang um right he didn't deserve it but i think she was doing that for lebowski i think she was singing for him not not for billy lee yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But then uh, similarly, the um, the older sister who had recovered her sister from the cult, she was telling Billy Lee, no, I'm not going to play your game, not going to play your game. But then she does play the game and that's then she does get shot. So I wasn't sure why she did that um, unless he was just going to shoot Miles anyway, right? Was that kind of the deal? Like, if you don't play, I'm going to shoot this guy anyway. So you better play. Yeah. And at that point, uh, yeah, that was disappointing when she did. It's like when you're dealing with that kind of a narcissistic, psychopath playing into their power trip in their into yeah exactly into their power trip it's like it's like it's like when the sjw mob comes after you for saying something that they don't like and then you apologize all that does is feed into their psychopathy that yeah we are right and you're wrong and you're a bad person and you know it all does is justify their own craziness that yeah there are bad people and you're a righteous person for pointing it out and that kind of crap yeah, there was a, now I don't remember what it was, but there was somebody recently who had said something and then the SJWs came after him and he apologized and was like, no, don't do it. No, don't do it. Yeah, we were talking about, wasn't it, um, you had just sent me a link to one of Tom's emails where he was talking about never apologize. And then you sent me another thing where somebody had apologized. Yeah, Man. Uh, the show notes. Yeah, I don't remember that crap, whatever it was. <laughs> I mean, it happens all the time. So, I mean, it, people won't be... <laughs> It won't be too hard to find find an example, but anyway. But uh, I think that that message of never apologize is getting out there more and more because you do see some people that are just refusing to apologize, which is excellent. 
Yeah, because you're never going to satisfy these people. Well, and you're admitting that you are like a bad person or that your behavior is reprehensible in some way because you said like a no-no word or something like that as if you're like, we're all seven years old and somebody tattling you to mommy for saying one of the words that you're not supposed to. Give me a break. You're talking to adults. Well said, sir. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes I just want to tell these kids to get off my lawn. (laughs) So uh, anyway, we'll be back uh, next week with Shaheen. I think that will be a really good one. He and I have exchanged a few messages and uh, he actually wants to talk a little bit about some of the criticisms we had of Man of Steel. I gave him a link to that episode. I think it was 46 of uh, our show. So actually, Anarchy.com slash 46, complete with terrible audio quality. Did Um, we do that solo, you and me? Yeah, and it's one of our more popular episodes. It has probably one of the highest download numbers uh, in our back catalog. So is Shaheen just going to turn into our resident Zack Snyder apologist guy? Uh, Every Zack Snyder movie you've ever seen anything bad about, he's going to come on and just rage against us? I mean, he might, he might, he might. Um, I did ask him why Superman can overcome the world engine's powers uh, that were preventing him from destroying the world engine uh, simply by having a disgruntled look on his face. And then uh, I also asked him, why do um, Zod and Superman punch fight each other when they're both indestructible? And that was, that was a big thing that we talked about in our episode. And he's, he's like, oh, juicy. You know, I want to talk about that stuff. He's going to actually like defend like comic book logic? I think so, yeah. I, okay. I think he's got it in him, man. Uh, he's definitely he's definitely got it in him. I'm just can't wait to find out what he's actually going to say because usually it's just well, hey, yeah, there's got to be a fight. I mean, there's, people want to see these guys fight. Why why wouldn't they? Right, so I'm yeah. sure he's got something better than that. Yeah, yeah, not just contrivances to <laughs> have action. Right. But anyway, so uh, he's going to put on a clinic again, like he did uh, the first time we had Batman v Superman. I, th- I think he spoke about eighty percent of that episode. But he's not going to defend Justice League so much, right? We're having him on for Justice League, but he's kind of going to—he's going to admit Justice League's pretty bad, right? But I think he's also got some of the content or some of the ideas of what the Snyder Cut was going to have in it. Mm. So he will be able to contrast what is versus what what could have been, what hopefully may be at some point in the future. Because there's apparently a big movement about release the Snyder Cut. I've actually seen things about it now since he mentioned it. So there's an actual physical Snyder Cut out there. But maybe it doesn't have all the CGI and whatever, but it does exist. There's at least elements of the story out there. Maybe storyboards. Maybe some of it's been shot. Um, it's been, there's a script then? Well, it, does it really seem like they were working from a script? <laughs> Supposedly, but I don't think so. I mean, right, got two different directors. Dress up as superheroes and let's ad-lib this mofo. Well, I think that's how Whedon works a little bit. I imagine he's the kind of a guy who's very plays very loose. And then like if anybody ad libs something funny, put it in there. Yeah. Anyway, we're we're kind of spoiling some content. We'll we'll use this next week uh, when we have Shaheen back on for Batman v Superman wrap up and Justice League. Uh, this has been actualanarchy.com slash 137 for the show notes and more for this one. Uh, give us the old subscribes and uh, the reviews and all that. And all your money at the Patreon, actual, actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. Uh, it helps uh, keep some lights on over here. We got webcams out of the deal. And uh, what else does it do? Anyway, it makes us feel good. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Psychic profit, baby. Psychic profit. All right. Well, I think that's it. Uh, any final notes for our audience before getting into some KTO, Robert? No, man. Thanks for sticking with us on this one. I know we sprung this one on you. So I don't know. Quite a few people like to watch the movie ahead of time, then listen to the episode. So unfortunately for you, you're not going to be able to do that until you see that it's available for download. Then you're going to do it. 
So sorry about that. We'll try and be better about, you know, these, these last minute things do happen. So sorry. Never apologize. Never, never apologize. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Maximum freedom. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.